sermon series that we're heading into for the next six weeks is entitled Sensible Faith. Now, what is sensible faith? Sensible faith is or will be, I hope, an abstract approach to Christ through kind of our examination of the senses. I say it's abstract uh, because I think normally you and I, we speak or converse in a very discrete sorts of ways. We're very statistical or uh, we understand data and, and proofs and information. That's how we are. Uh, I, I think the normal sermon series on the, on the senses would certainly have to do with the biology of the senses. That's not what I want to do. I, this is going to be much more conceptual. It's going to be much more abstract, more dynamic. Uh, so instead of uh, engineered conversation, this is going to be maybe more philosophical conversation. And there's a few reasons I've done this. The first is, I think it's healthy for us to, to approach God down different paths at times. If you keep going to the Lord the same way, pretty soon uh, you're overly familiar. And so we're going to try to approach the Lord from a more abstract way over these next six weeks. And I, I, hope, I hope that you find that refreshing. I hope. Uh, secondly, there are some of you out here who think in abstract ways and you're being starved right now by our technocratic culture. I'm one of them. And so it's a breath of fresh air for some of you just to think... Um, outside of the norm. Uh, also, God has given us our sensory system, the sense to touch and feel and speak and, and taste. These are the basic building blocks he's given us to establish and form more complex ideas. All of our complex ideas are built upon our senses. And they're powerful and they're good and they do a lot, but for one, they're so basic they go unnoticed oftentimes. And two... They have been a source of human independence from God. It's through our, our senses that we've kind of, whether practically or intentionally or unintentionally, sometimes we declare our independence from God. We, we can see, we can touch, we know, that's enough. And what I want to do over these, this time is kind of bring the senses back underneath the purpose of God. I want to give it a divine purpose. Why do you have the sense of sight? Why did he even give it to you? I don't know if I'll answer those questions, but I just think it's fun to ask those questions. It's healthy to. And finally, we're doing this because I want to. Um, it sounds fun to me. Uh, sometimes it's worth preaching a sermon series where you're paddling downstream. And, and uh, uh, so that's what we're doing. So I hope, I hope we pursue this with a redemptive purpose. I hope we approach Christ through this. That's certainly the goal. And we're beginning this morning with sight, the sense of vision, of how we see things. And if you're going to follow along in your bulletin, there's a few points. I'm dropping the last two. I'm, I'm actually pushing them to later Sundays. So in case you know, you're one of those people who needs the kind of rhythm of how far along are we, how late is this guy going to go, we're ending at three. Uh, so don't get too nervous. I chose sight, I actually I chose sight just automatically, and then I started asking, once you start thinking about the senses, I, I started asking, well, why did I choose sight first? And thinking about that led me to say this, and I don't know, again, I'm going to say for most people, but I think for most people, the sense of vision 
is the king of the senses. Just think about it in your own life. It's the king of the senses. It's the one we, we consciously rely upon the most. It's the one we appreciate the most. It's the ones we use the most in formulating ideas. When you think in your mind, if I said, think of a lion, what are you thinking? Are you thinking of the smell of a lion? Really? Any of you thinking of the, the taste of lion? Have any of you eaten lion? More times than not, and it's just not because a lion's a foreign creature that you've only seen. If I said, think of a square, well, that, that doesn't even have a taste. If I said, think of a, of a shoebox, you'd think of the image of a shoebox. It's just we think, we have image things. Uh, we think with an image. It's what we say when we say, think of your, use your mind's eye. That's our way of telling ourselves that image is king. It's the way our minds, our mind projects thought. And this is another reason that I think sight is king, is because sight is the only one of the senses that's not ambient. It isn't always on. Your sense of smell is always on. Your sense of feeling is always on. You're always feeling. You can't turn it off. It's there. It's working in you. It's always being powered. It can be impaired. You can you know, shoot your cheek with Novocaine and that'll feel impaired, but it's still on. It's just impaired. With sight, it's not that way. With sight, you can turn it off. Watch. It's off. And then they turn it on again. And you can, you can consciously, off, on. You can do that. And not only does it turn off and on very consciously, but God turns it off and on. When the sun goes down, it gets dark. And you can't see and so you feel its loss. Every night you feel its loss. When you go into a dark room, you feel its absence. We feel uncomfortable when we're in a dark room, don't we? It could be the same dark room you've been in a thousand times, and if it's pitch black, all of a sudden there's monsters. Because, because sight's king. It's there. I think because of this, sight or vision, whatever, however you want to say it, holds a certain primacy with us. We have a saying, if you hear something pretty impressive, you might say, well, I'll have to see it to believe it. That's what we say. Now, if someone came into you and told you this amazing story, have you ever thought about saying, I'll have to smell it to believe it? You just don't do that. You would be weird if you did that. You just don't do that. I have to see it to believe it. The, the religions of atheism or of secular naturalism, they live and worship the sense of sight. They say they place all their faith and all their hope in, in the fact that there is no God based on this principle, that we do not have observable or repeatable observations of the phenomenon known as God. They say, show me God and I'll believe in God. In other words, they're placing God beneath the sense of sight. That's what science is. Science is the examination of observable and repeatable phenomenon. And if it doesn't meet that, it isn't. They say it isn't. It isn't science. Doesn't mean it isn't. But we have this way of kind of drumming the power of sight up. Can you make an observation? If you can, it has this power. As though sight is the window to all truth. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to kind of give ourselves a little bit of sensitive humility about sight. Some of the senses we're going to have to drum up. Some of them we rarely ever think about. And, and we're going to spend our Sundays talking about what God's doing with the sense. 
Today I want to talk about the limitations of a sense, because the sense of sight is so powerful in our lives. And so if you would, turn in your Bibles to Numbers chapter 21. And if you're using a Bible in the back of the seat, it's page 109. Because it's a hard one to find. Numbers chapter 21 will be uh, verses 4 through 9, I believe. While you're turning there, I'll give you a little bit of background. Numbers chapter 21 is, is picking up in the life of the Hebrew people after they have been rescued from Egypt, after they've been brought to the mountain, after they've received the Ten Commandments, after they've built the ark or, or the tabernacle and all of the other parts of, of the tabernacle, after they've gone through the land and they've arrived at the promised land, after the spies have gone in and come out, after the spies have said the land is wonderful but there's giants, after the people said, well, then we want no part of it, after God said, well, then you'll have no part of it, except for Joshua and Caleb, after the people said, oh, well, wait a second, we do want a part of it, and after said, the Lord said, no, too late. Every one of you is going to die. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until every one of you is dead but Joshua and Caleb because you didn't want what I tried to give you in the first place. After that, after most of their wandering is in the desert, that's where Numbers 21 is. Numbers 21, it, it, when I read it in the, the season of the wandering that I find it in, it's about at the time when God grabs the Hebrew people and starts to turn them back for the promised land one more time. Right, right in this part of the book, God's actually saying, all right, 40 years is almost up. Your oldest people are almost dead. And we can start going. Aaron has already passed away by this point, the high priest of Aaron. So that's kind of where we are in this segment. They're actually going to be on their way to the promised land. They get to the land of Edom, and the Edomites say, can't come in. Can't we just cross? No. Nope. The Edomites mass a large army and they say, you're not coming in. You've got to go around Edom. So the Hebrew people are like, ah. Oh. So they have to circumvent Edom, and this is when we pick up the story. Verse 4. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the desert? There is no bread, there is no water, and we, have de- and we detest the miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people. And many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We've sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by the snake and looked at the bronze snake he lived. Now, I've selected this account, first of all, because of the bizarre imagery of the account. I mean, your mind, when you read this story, your mind has just to go crazy. It's one of those, it's just, it's hard on the mind to be this visual. But also, there's a role that vision plays in the story. So it isn't simply very picturesque. Vision plays a role in the story. 
And so I want to ask this question. If we say, I have to see it to believe it, I have this question for you. So far, God has given the Hebrew people Moses and the staff. So far, God has given the Hebrew people miracle after miracle after miracle after... I'm talking daily miracle. Manna from heaven every single day. So far, God's give, He's dwelled with him. He descends in smoke into the tabernacle. He leads them as a pillar of fire or as a cloud by day. All of this is happening. He instructs them in a visual way. The Ten Commandments aren't ten ideas that Moses brought from the mountain, are they? Moses comes off the mountain with visible laws of God. Isn't that amazing? Vision's king. Moses says, look. And on these tablets are carved by the finger of God, truth. It isn't like it occasionally happens over the course of 5,000 years that God rarely shows up. Every single day you woke up in the camp of the Hebrews, God was sustaining you by miracle. Manna, you run out of water, we have no water, water. When the cloud leaves, you follow. At night, it's the flame. So if you have to see it to believe it, why did they see it and not believe it? And why are we called, we who don't see it, to believe it? If vision is king, if vision is so palpable, if vision, if we could just see, if we can make an observation, a repeatable observation, why can these people who repeat, see the repeated miracles of God daily in their life, why do they reject him to his face? because vision is limited. Vision is limited. And we're going to talk about these limitations. Here's the first one. The first limitation of vision is that what we see depends upon our perspective. What we see depends upon our perspective. What you see depends on where you're standing. Its perspective is context. Try as you might, you will never see the dark side of the moon. You could want to know all the knowledge of the moon you can, you will never see the dark side of the moon because it's beyond your perspective. There was this time, if you ever came to my house and said, John, I would really love to watch your old family movies because that's what people do. They always come to my house when I see family movies. I would pull out these videos and... And I have this one when my wife and I, and, and Timothy was born at the time, we holidayed in Valdez, Alaska. We were living in Alaska at the time. We took holiday down there. We're there, and I have this stunning footage of bald eagles swooping out of the sky all around me. I'm being orbited by a flock of bald eagles, and it's gorgeous. It's stunning. You would say to me, why, that's stunning. And then you would say, this is just how amazing it is, you would say, you must be like a professional videographer, like a W-H-Y-Y nature show guy to capture these films. How did you do this? We're, we need to see all your family movies. That's what you say. To which I would have to confess this. The way I took those stunning photos is I put my back up against the dumpster full of garbage that they were feeding on, and I took pictures. In Alaska, we call bald eagles dumpster chickens. They're carrion birds. Now, what you see through the lens of the camera is this stunning view of the national bird 
presenting its wingspan. And, oh, oh. What I saw, uh, I had the stench of garbage in my nose. And I, I had this, oh, i got to take a shower feeling. But you had a different perspective. That's what perspective is. You didn't see everything that there was to see. You didn't even see the reason the birds were there. You saw a misleading image. And, and, and the image here in Scripture, in this story, is the, is the opposite of my experience in Alaska. What, what you see here, what the people, the Hebrew people are viewing, is they're looking at God with a dumpster of garbage behind him. That's what they're seeing. They're seeing all the garbage of their life just beyond God, or maybe even in front of God. That's what's on them. So they're bent out of shape, they're frustrated, There's, it's hardship all around them, and that is the filter through which they're understanding God. That's their perspective. It's not a complete perspective. It's their perspective. Someone loses a loved one in an untimely manner. You can imagine that their perspective on God will for a season be very different than yours. It may be a time when they don't want to see God because every time they look at God, behind him is their past loved one. Perspective. There's so much that you cannot see from your vantage point. Everything that God's trying to do for you, everything He's trying, everything He has in store for us, everything He's intended for us, the things He's withholding for us for our own health. We don't see any of that from our perspective. And if you were in the camp of the Hebrews and you're sitting around a fire, listening, you would hear something like, "Stupid Edom, got to walk around Edom. We should bust on Edom." Stupid Edom. And someone else, stupid manna. I'm sick of manna. Manna pie. Manna sandwiches. Manna soup. Mayonnaise. I hate it. <laughs> if I eat more manna and someone else is like stupid rocking my sandal, blisters, 40 years, someone else, I'm about to die. And someone else like, God said you're going to die. I know God said I was going to die, but I'm about to die. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Nobody. I put big money on the fact that nobody's going to say, well, at least we're not in a valley full of venomous snakes. Because you can't anticipate the way God's protecting you. Your perspective on God is what is in your life right now. You have no idea the the bucket of grace that God is pouring out over your life to preserve and guide you. All you see is stupid manna, stupid rock in my shoe, stupid wilderness. That's all you see. You have a limited perspective. We just need a humility about our perspective. You see at your best day a tiny sliver of the person of God. And if you're a young Christian, I would say, if you're seeking to find humility as a young Christian, I would say, find humility in the fact that you have a very limited perspective on God. Very narrow perspective on God. Because a a broad perspective, the way you can approach objectivity is by looking at the same object from as many possible angles as you can, as many different settings as you can. That takes time and experience, life experience and study. You've got to stare at God from here, and then you've got to move. You've got to stare at God from here. You've got to stare at God from here. You've got to stare at God from here. How big is God? How long would it take us to orbit Him? You can't. You'll never do it. Our vision is limited by perspective. Second limitation. What we, we observe things, or our vision is dependent upon our focus 
We look at things that have captured our attention. Vision is not what we see. Vision is what we're looking at. Very different. Very different ideas to see things and to look at things. You know, it's one thing when we can't understand God because we can't, we have a perspective and we don't have all kinds of perspectives. So I can't understand what God's doing because this is my perspective. It's quite a different thing when we don't know what God's doing because we refuse to focus on Him. Focus is in our court. I think so often we clearly miss what God wants us to watch because we're distracted. It just shows you that our vision starts in the heart. It's not an unbiased thing. You can be in a room with a hundred things and you'll see the one thing you want to see and you'll miss the blatantly obvious thing that's sitting there. That's what's happening in this story. In this story... God has been taking care of the Hebrew people for 40 years. Perfectly faithful. God's starting to turn their compass needle towards the promised land. God's about to bring them back. In Deuteronomy, God starts to say words like, Okay, you're about to do this again. Do you understand? Because I've run out of patience. That's all about to happen. And what are they focused on? Rock in my shoe. Manna on my plate. Stupid Edom. That's their focus. They totally miss God sustaining them through all of this. They're not looking at God, so what does God do? God brings serpents into, into the camp and it starts to bite them. Immediately they say, Ah, oh, this is happening because we have not been paying attention to God. They go to Moses and they say, We're sorry, we're sorry, we're sorry. What does God ask the Lord to forgive us? And what does the Lord do? The Lord says, Make a pole, put a snake on it, and make them look at it. Do you see what God's doing there? God is capturing their attention. This is what God's trying to do with us. God is giving us things in life so that we focus our attention on Him. You can be in church all day long. You can come to church 53 weeks a year. And if your attention is not on Him, it doesn't count. It does not count. What is your focus? I think most of our life's struggle has to do with God's attempts to regain our attention. Get our focus back on what he wants us to look at. Finally. So we're limited by our perspective. We're limited by our focus. Here's the third one. What we see depends upon light. So obvious that we miss it. What we see depends upon light. Light enables vision. No light, no see. No light, no color, no depth, no image. No matter, no matter, we can spend all day talking about the image, the pole with the snake. We can spend all day talking about it, what it means, its significance, how it makes us feel, what we thought the, the artist had in mind when he carved the snake. We can do all of that, but we do all of that based on the assumption that God, is, the Son, has provided the light to even see it. The revelation that we have here, we can talk about Jesus Christ. We can talk about what he's done on his pole when he was raised up. We can talk about all of that. It is based upon the fact that God has shed his light on mankind. 
I'm going to get hard for a second. For the non-believer, for the non-Christian, do you think on the great day of the Lord, the great and terrible day of the Lord, when you arrive in His kingdom, and He says, Why did you not worship my Son who died for your sins? Who gave you a free gift of salvation based on His sacrifice? Why have you passed Him over? When He... When he passed over you through his sacrifice, why did you do that? And when you turn to God and say, ah, well, nobody, nobody explained it to me in the right way. I couldn't really see. Yeah. My pastor, loser. You know, people in my family. I, I'm not religious. You know, I've had marks on me from the church. The Lord is going to say, you lived your life in the light. It would be one thing. You have lived, you have circumvented the sun 30, 40, 63 times in your life. Every single day, the light of God shining down on you, his revelation. It isn't like you're in communist China. It isn't like you're growing up in some deep, dark jungle, like you're a Halley's Comet, where once every 70 years you get a glimpse of light, and then you're off back into the darkness. You're in the United States, for crying out loud. There's 300 Bibles in this room. You can have all of them. You can have them all. There is no excuse for a Western non-believer to say, I did not have the revelation of God. How much more light do you need? It's here. It's presented before you. God's images of salvation have been given to you so that you might see. The sun beats down on us up here. I'm going to curse you this summer. This is my prayer for you, non-Christian. That every time the sun rises and you feel the heat of summer on you, every time you sweat, every time you sit at the beach in the sun with the sunglasses on so that your eyes are shut and so you can enjoy the darkness but bask in this heat, I want you to know that you are ignoring the light of God. All right. I'll change topics now. But I'm still going to be hard. The very thing that is the conviction for the non-Christian is the great indictment for the church. Just as God's great light is a conviction to the sinner, so often does the church, who claims to have the light, who claims to be the light, we're a city on a hill, we're a bright light that isn't covered. That, you know what that means? That means when we sin, we sin in broad daylight. That's what it means. Sinners, they sin in the dark. There's something totally different when a church who has the light of God continues to rebelliously sin in the daylight. I'm not saying that we're not, we don't mess up. We certainly mess up. I mess up as much as you. It's this attitude of we can live the way we want to live and yet live in the light. God says, be holy because I'm holy. Not to the world. He says it to his people. That's why he brought the snakes. It's not as if God controls the universe looking for people to dump buckets of snakes on. He dumps buckets of snakes on his people who sin in the daylight. That's what's happening. You know, we don't even have to talk about the image. Just the fact that God's grace is poured out on us so we can see. 
I don't even think we realize. I think we take so much for granted with God's grace just that we may see. So I'm going to say it very plainly this morning. Here is the correct perspective on this story. The serpent has his fangs in you. You're in a valley of serpents. It isn't even Eden. It isn't one serpent. We live in a universe, in a land of serpents. If you avoid that one, you're going to get bit by that one. The question is not, are you not going to get bit? You don't look at the pole with the snake on it to avoid getting bit. The scriptures say, when you get bit, look at the pole with the snake on it. We live in a field of serpents. They've infected the camp. And God has crafted a way to be healed. God says, I want your attention. Look at what I have raised up before you so that you might have life and have life to the fullest. That's the perspective that God gives me. He's saying, focus on, on the pole that you might be saved. There is a, an account in the third chapter of John, and I'll close with this. In the third chapter of John, this man named Nicodemus, he wanted to know the truth. So when did he go see Jesus? At night. I love that. To go visit the light, the light of men at night. In the beginning was the word, the word was light. To go at night to talk to it. That's just to me, that has endless irony. But Nicodemus goes to talk to Jesus and he's getting ready to start asking questions and Jesus just totally seizes the conversation. He says, this is my conversation, Nicodemus. Listen. And so he starts to say, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, I don't understand that. And Jesus says a little thing else. And Nicodemus is like, wow, what are you trying to say? And finally Jesus says this, for crying out loud, Nicodemus, you are a teacher of the law. You have grown up in the light. You're supposed to bear the torch of your people for all mankind. And you don't know these things? He says, you want to know heavenly reality. You can't even interpret earthly reality based on the light I've given you. And just before, just before Jesus says these words, just before he says, Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, just before he says that, before he says, for whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what Jesus says. This is the verse before. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. What is your perspective? What is your focus? What are you doing with the light? Amen.